Let's see. Did we say we're going to do solan- um, solanine first? How do we even say that word? Solanine? Think, yeah. Solanine? Okay. I say solanine. I don't know if that's correct. Welcome to a new podcast about manga. We are calling it Manga in Your Ears, uh, which I stole from the WWE In Your House pay-per-views. Um, with me, I'm Corey from the Taiku Podcast and the Fangin' Post. Uh, with me both from OASG, Helen and April. Hi! Hi! I also do the OASG podcast and I write for the OASG website. I technically have my own blog, but it's kind of dead right now. We all get busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these uh, these two and sort of me are credentialed manga writers. Uh, for this episode, we will be covering uh, Inio Asana Solomon and Nagata Kabi's My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness. Um, the goal with this podcast is uh, we want to cover an old series in the first part of the podcast, and then a newer series in the second part of the podcast. And whether we do, like, one volume or a couple volumes for the longer-running series, we have not decided or discussed yet. But we well, will. I think we did to an extent. It's like Corey and I are someday going to have a very long, magic podcast, since we oh, both yes. like that series, and it doesn't get <laughs> enough discussion. Thanks for but for this first episode, me. we're doing two stories, which are both one-off volumes, although the this release of Solonin looks pretty thick. I think this is an omnibus but it's only one volume in the u.s we're just going to talk about two complete stories today yeah and that was our goal with this first episode is uh, just get out two complete stories and not worry about uh whether we should talk about like volume nine of vinland saga or whatever's out now yeah let's not because i haven't read volume nine i only read up to volume six i think uh yep i think that's the same for me gosh there's nine volumes of that out now and remember, they're all doubles, too, so that means oh, that in Japan, God. people have bought 18 volumes of Viking epicness, I guess? Yeah. It's a good series. It's a good series. I started getting a little bored by it, so that's how I discovered that my library let me renew books up to ten times, and that comes out to about six months of checkouts. And at that point, you just had to read Finland Saga, because it was about to be new. God, it's almost due. I need to just binge read manga, which is how I usually read manga anyway, so... Yeah, well, our manga reading habits aside, uh, let's talk about Solonin. Uh, April, we did, uh, we did a panel on manga at ASIM. Uh, you covered Yosano for that Mm -hmm. uh, panel. Would you like to introduce Solonin? Yeah, uh, Solonin is, uh, basically sort of, um, a coming age story, a coming of age story, rather, um, that focuses on, um, the main character, a young girl, uh, probably more in her mid-twenties, um, and her boyfriend at the time, and she sort of, uh, moved to Tokyo to get away from sort of her, her, I guess her country home to sort of go to school, and now she has the, the office job that's not quite fulfilling, the relationship that she's not quite sure where it's going, um, and then she has the boyfriend that's not quite sure what he wants to do, and everybody's still kind of hanging around in Tokyo and just not sure where things are going. Um, so I think that uh, at least when we talked about it at ASIM, we talked a little bit about it, about it being um, a pretty relatable experience, at least for a certain chunk of people um, at this particular age. Um, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty. Uh, chunky volume. There, there's a lot going on in the series, so. Yeah, uh, Viz released it as one volume, one big volume. I think it's two or three volumes in Japan, um, but this Omnibus style really works for for me because it's cheaper. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of relatability in the series, just because like we're all I think around the age of the characters. And I'm sure we've all experienced some sort of professional stagnation where we have no idea where what we want to do or where we want to go with our lives. You guys but. can't see it, but I'm raising my hand right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, the job search is very disheartening. Uh, mm-hmm. Some some people might just go back to school instead of deal with it. Also raising my hand right now. <laughs> 
And it's funny because I know I originally read Solanine um, when I was still in college because I remember coming across it in high school, but I don't think I had a copy of it at the local library until I was in college. Or maybe I just sat down at Barnes and Noble in college and did a mo- and was a manga account and read it. I forget which one was. But even then, even before I was um, 24, which I think is roughly the age of the characters, it was right. still kind of relatable to see people who are like, well, it's kind of hard actually to get going on your own. You have these ideas about what you kind of want to do, but none of those fit really neatly into how the world actually works. And it's this very frustrating process of slogging your way through. And you don't really want to make too many mistakes since a lot depends on your life. Like, how am I going to get food? You know, where am I sleeping? But you still kind of got to make mistakes. So it can be very uncomfortable in some ways growing up. Yeah, they the characters get like, smashed by real life very quickly too. Uh, once she, the the main character, the girl, I forget her name already. I'm terrible. Um, she uh, Miko. I've got the book in front of me. Miko, yes. Uh, <laughs> she uh, she quits her job. She has uh, quite a bit in savings, and she's like, "Well, if I really scrimp and save, I'll probably be able to make this last a month." But by the end of the summer, she's almost out of it. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the realities of real life just hit the characters right, right where it hurts, because once you quit the job that you feel like you're going nowhere, uh, you finally have this freedom for a couple of days, but, uh, almost immediately she's just sitting, um, in her living room watching TV or playing video games, not really knowing what to do with all of this free time. And especially in the context of Japanese hiring practices, where usually you get a job and you tend to stick with that company for quite a while. So I've seen this as a plot point in a lot of anime and manga, where if somebody quits at an unusually young age, that can really hinder them in the further job search. Even more than in the U.S., you have to quit your job and the woes of trying to find a new job even today. Yeah. I also think, too, that that period of free time is what really sort of uh, sort of strains their relationship with her boyfriend, or at least sort of sort of puts it in a light where is this really working? Is it not working? What are we going to do now? Um, I sort of think had she not quit her job, maybe they would have just kept sort of plugging along to see uh, where things would go. But I think once she quit her job, it sort of put that relationship in the forefront. Like, where is this really going? Where am I really going? Where are we really going? So it sort of propelled the story forward at that point. Yeah. Once you you break the, uh, the routine, then you're suddenly asking all these questions that you never would have asked because that's not part of the routine is to ask these questions about the relationship. Yeah, but it also gives um, her and her boyfriend, by extension, a bit more freedom since her boyfriend's in a band. And if I'm remembering right, the band starts really experimenting with sending their CVs out to producers and trying to get um, signed after um, Mako is on the loose with the rest of them. They kind of go, well, we do have this time, so let's try to make something more of it. And they do start finding, I think, at least a little success then. Yeah, next one they start um, realizing that the, the thing that they've wanted is has been in front of them this whole time is their music. Um, that's the kind of artistic or creative fulfillment that they've, that they've wanted, but they've never really pursued because they're so stuck in this routine. Yeah, I wouldn't really call this a music series, even though music figures heavily into it because it's just so solidly slice of life. Yeah. Like there's music here, but it's because it's part of Mako and her friends' lives, you know? Right, right, right. Excellent. This is coming of age is a very good descriptor of it because they use their music as a way of coming of age, you know. And even though they're uh, they're not coming of age in the traditional anime sense and that like they're high schoolers, but they're uh, post college people. I guess they're not kids, but I was about to call them kids, but they're, they're post college and they they are coming of age realizing uh, realizing what they want out of life because even when you're in college or when you're out of college, you might not even know. Or you get into the real world and it just doesn't quite work out the way you think it's going to, since Mako's had a job for a couple of years as an office lady. And it sounds like it's okay, but it's not quite what she wants. And she clearly, you know, had to work hard to get that job. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can take a while to figure out exactly why something isn't fitting and what you should do to go forward with it. Uh, I feel like a lot of this book is the woes of being a young adult, which I feel like a lot of people except for those crazy people who get jobs while they're still in college will <laughs> sympathize with a lot. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to get a job anymore, I think. 
<laughs> well, I also, I also think, too, um, the music part of it, even in terms of the coming of age, I also felt like it helped them sort of process their feelings after what happens um, in the middle of the book. I don't necessarily want to spoil the middle of the book, but um, I also thought it was just a way for it was kind of cathartic for them as a way to sort of process their feelings and grow up, but also deal with what's happened. So I don't know if, if for me, I really saw the music as a way for them to grow up. It's sort of the middle of the book is what I felt like caused them to grow up. And then sort of the music is the aftermath of how do we deal with actually having grown up now at this point? Yeah. And one of the kind of the ideas of the book is that this music, it's not something they have to throw away when they grow up. It's something that can grow up with them as well. And it's nice to see a story that says, yeah, your hobbies or even your passions, some of them will stay the same. Some of them will carry on with you and that's okay. Yeah, I think it. you could even argue that um, without the music, I don't know if they could have um, gotten through the latter half of the book or the latter half of their lives. I, it, I feel like it even goes uh, further than a hobby. It's something that they actually needed to survive adulthood. Maybe that's a bit of a reach, but that's kind of what I took from that part of it anyway. Yeah, and looking at it from a storytelling perspective, this would be a very slim volume without the music in there, and it would have been really hard to connect together a lot of the emotional moments. It provides some of the downtime that you really need in a story to process what's just happened, you know? You need, right. you need action right. and then downtime before you get to more action, or you just feel overwhelmed as a reader. Yeah, it definitely would have been slim without that. Um, I also feel like it... it might have been a little more generic without that. Not that there haven't been other stories of a coming of age that involve music, but like you, like uh, Helen was sort of saying, they have the the downtime with the music. But yeah, it would have been particularly slim without that aspect. And I think um, one of the things that sort of sticks out about it is the music doesn't seem uh, sort of sort of shoehorned in. Um, it seems like a natural hobby that they sort of mentioned in the beginning of the book and then in the end that's sort of what gets them through uh, growing up so it doesn't feel like it's sort of shoved in as sort of a coming of age device as it were yeah and I feel like this is my favorite coming of age manga which involves music and manga or anime since I've seen a couple like I do like Beck a lot but the characters are younger there Nana I think is overly melodramatic I don't think Anonymous Noise even counts in this category <laughs> but I really like Solanine I think um Folks who really liked Honey and Clover would appreciate this story. Okay. Since Honey and Clover does a similar thing where instead of music, the characters have art, which helps them just move through life as they start um, in college and then move to young adulthood. Uh, the characters are also about the same ages. I feel like this idea of the slice of life and that there is a major part of your life that's not quite work, not quite school, that helps you keep going through it works really well and also rings very true to life, I feel. Yeah, this is their kind of outlet for their for the frustrations of their lives. Uh, like Mako would uh, sometimes go and see Tanaka's uh, practices before her job, but then after her job, she um, after she got the job, she just didn't want to do that anymore because either she was too busy or they were doing it during her work or whatever other reason. But it's it's kind of what like drives her the rest of the way. You know? I will admit one thing I did not sympathize with this book is that she keeps getting all of these wonderful vegetables from her parents and then lets them rot in the fridge. I'm like, girl, you are 24, you are poor, you take those vegetables and you work them into your diet. I understand why the story does it from the thematic standpoint of she's still trying to cut herself off from her family, from her past in a little way, you know, be more independent. But on the other hand, girl, take take those vegetables, eat them. <laughs> Yeah, like, she didn't seem she didn't seem particularly appreciative of those, and uh, I would have taken them and figured out how to make it work. <laughs> she talks about independence, but uh, she doesn't like part of being independent would be to take those vegetables and like make your own food, which is uh, you know some sort of dependence, but also some bigger form of independence. I think not having to rely on uh, grocery stores or restaurants to make your food. That is true. That's a good point. Yeah, I've always wondered how the um, how different the U.S. and Japan are when it comes to making your food versus buying food. Since in the U.S., making your own food is cheaper, but it's seen as something you can only do if you have time. Otherwise, you have to spend the money instead to buy food. So I really wonder if that has the same connotations in Japan, since I think this is partially the lens that we're all looking at it from. Yeah, that's true. I know there are a lot of cheap ramen stands in Japan. Mm-hmm. 
But that much sodium is not good for you in the long run. (laughs) These guys are still young. They can handle it for a while. Well, all right. Uh, Any any closing thoughts on Solon? Should we spoil the second half of the book? I don't really want to. Not I, I feel like the story stands pretty well without having to spoil it. Yeah. Spoilers, guys, something happens. <laughs> something definitely happens. Something I think, I think, happens I think it's, I think it's worth keeping that one to ourselves. It's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty big turning point. So, and at least the first time that I read it, uh, I didn't expect it. So, I think I sort of started figuring out something was going to happen in the few pages that started leading up to it, but I definitely didn't know what was going to happen when I went in. Yeah, no, I didn't expect it at all. Uh, it's always just straight out of nowhere, and then you know, a couple chapters later, the you see the aftermath of it, and, and it gets yeah. you in the feels. Yeah, Rip and Mako hanging out. Uh, all right, well, let's take a short break, and then we will come back to talk about the 384th Seven Seas lesbian manga. Uh, did you actually count? No, I did not okay. count. I just said a random number. That'd be great if it was the actual number, though. It might not be that far off. <laughs> uh, my lesbian experience of wellness. We'll be back. <laughs> We're back. We're here to talk about my lesbian experience with loneliness. The parentheses true story and art by Nagata Kabi. I did not notice this true thing until I opened the book. I didn't notice that until today. (laughs) 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 I mean, I didn't know that was the subtitle for the book, but I knew it was autobiographical going in the first time I read it. So I had no idea it was autobiographical until it got to the point where she explicitly says, I'm writing about myself. <laughs> plot twist. Yeah. Author was the main character all along. It's a, it's a heck of a plot twist in a book like this. Yeah. So this was uh, quite a turn for me in my head. Um, I thought it was weird that there that there was like so much narration and it was all in the first person. But I thought, uh, well, it says prologue on some of these chapters, so maybe once we get into the actual chapters, it'll just be a normal manga. No. That's not how it is. Uh, no. The reason Twitter was losing its mind over this manga is because it is an actual lesbian talking about her actual experiences with depression and queerness and such in Japan. And everybody loves those. Yes, I can relate stories, including myself. Yeah. Yes. I suppose we should, uh, in curious to look more, Ellen, you want to take it away? Sure. So our, um, uh, author and main character explains to us that she had a pretty normal life, you know, through high school was doing well But she got to college and she just started losing interest in doing things. I think she said she went to art school and then dropped out after six months. Mm -hmm. And so she returned home or possibly been living at home the entire time. But the point is she wasn't in school anymore. Her world shrunk to be just about her home and family. And she started feeling more and more trapped, which um, is definitely a sign of depression encroaching in. And she speaks about, you know, trying to find, you know, purpose in her life after that, trying to get a job, trying to please her family, and it just keeps going, and she seems to have a couple of breakdowns. It sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't, and along the way, she does realize at one point, oh, I'm a lesbian. This would explain a couple of things going on with me. Yeah. Not everything. She definitely does not blame her lesbianness for the fact she has depression, because that would be completely inaccurate, but that becomes a part of her life as well. So I've heard a lot of people say they expected the lesbian part of the story to play into the story more than the loneliness part, but I actually um, don't feel like the lesbianness was the biggest part of the story at all. Uh, yeah, yeah I, definitely the loneliness and the depression. Yeah, I don't think that I was expecting that, at least initially, I sort of, um, maybe because of the the other books that have come out from Seven Seas, I sort of expected the sexuality or the lesbian part of it to be larger. And um, there is a nipple on the cover, so. That's true, that's true. Um, but it, it's <laughs> It's not as large of a part as you would think. Um, it's pretty clear within the first few pages that uh, she's depressed and has other issues going on. And that's 
um, something that that like I was not ready for when I first opened the book. I, I think the cover prepares you for one thing and then you open the book and she's talking about some of the issues and some of the struggles that she's had with mental illness and cutting and et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, wow, I didn't really go into the book expecting those things. And it just turns into a great book, a very relatable book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the third panel is, I have a bald spot on my head, and I hide it. And then the fourth panel goes straight to, here are scars from me cutting myself. And it's like, holy shit. <laughs> We're going there, folks. Yeah, within three or so pages, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and to be clear, there is lesbianness in this book. Like, she does go to a lesbian escort service twice. So, right. like, yeah, that, don't, that don't worry, guys. Yeah. It's still there. <laughs> but I thought it was sort of an, um, an interesting perspective uh, to see just based on some of the other uh, lesbian stories that we get. Um, this is sort of an interesting experience to sort of weave in um, mental illness and just sort of coming out from underneath your parents. Like, I, I feel like those are uh, narratives and sort of queer narratives that we don't really see, um, at least that we haven't seen on the U.S. side. Um, from manga up to this point there could be series that I've missed but a lot of the series that I at least see sort of in the bookstore are sort of uh, the school age girls etc cetera, etc cetera. and this is like totally something totally different um, and a narrative that I see um, sort of more in real life among people that I know as opposed to like uh, within the comic medium itself yeah I think that the story is very indie like it's so indie it was originally published on Pixiv, the mm-hmm. Japanese art site um Think DeviantArt, except not DeviantArt. It's just similar. Yeah. Um, and actually, the thing was, I never thought it was going to be licensed. So I read some translations of being like, oh, okay, you know, this is like, you know, the equivalent of someone posting a webcomic. And then it got licensed by Seven Seas. And I was like swearing and immediately claiming it for review in the OASG um, <laughs> manga chat. <laughs> and I actually went to a queer book club for it. Um, one of the comic book stores in D.C. near me has a queer bo- um, comic book club every month. And this was the... Uh, the title for June. And there were about, I'd say 20 or so people there, mix of genders. I think everyone was in about the twenties or thirties mix of races. And everyone was like, I really related to this. And in so many different ways, some for the queerness and a lot of people for the, yeah, this feels a lot like my depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She talks about, uh, having eating disorders, both overeating and undereating. At one point she was 84 pounds and she's five, six. Uh, but, I am shorter and have never been that skinny. <laughs> I am also shorter and have never been that skinny. <laughs> that is terrifying amount of skinny. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but she also like ate raw ramen, like the packaged ramen. Um, yeah, that was a that was a painful scene. That mm-hmm. was a painful one. There were a lot of different points within it where I was like, oh no, but that one in particular, oh no, yeah. Yeah, I read that and I just. I'm staring at it right now, and I'm like, oh, I'd stop for a minute and be like, what is happening in this manga? Yeah, I have um, depression. I only discovered it last year, and I had some stress food stuff going on last year. And so part of it was that I would get really hungry at points and just had to keep eating to fill myself up. And so I could relate with what she's doing there. I never got to the point where I was eating, like, raw ramen or anything like that. I always made sure I had food on hand to prevent it. But there's a lot of parts in this book which either rang true to my own life or I thought express things really eloquently. Like when she talks about cutting, I was thinking, I've seen this explanation for cutting before. It's not unfamiliar to me. But for someone who hasn't seen the explanation of I do this because it puts my mental pain in a physical way, I can understand it better. I think this could really help some people come to understand some parts of uh, mental health issues that they might not have understood before. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as someone who doesn't have depression, uh, that that part where she's like trying to uh, make her depression something physical, I had to read that line a couple times because I was like not following it at all. Like I didn't understand the sentiment of uh, of trying to make your mental pain physical um, just because of my own ignorance. But it's very striking. Do you remember which image it was you had trouble with? Since I thought her um, metaphor of carrying the full glass on the head was a really good illustration. Was it that one? No, that one was good. Specifically the cutting thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, the full glass on the head one for um, those folks who haven't read it yet. um, That's where she's describing that trying to please her parents and grandmother who live with her. It feels a little bit like she's walking around with this full glass of water on her head trying not to spill a drop. 
And then you see in the background of her panel, her mother saying, but I don't see anything there at all. This idea that her parents are at least somewhat unwittingly unaware of what's going on with her and just not connecting and that that makes this even harder for her. She can't say, I'm having a hard time. I need help. And start going, oh, we don't see it at all. And sometimes even just saying to someone, I see, I can kind of understand what's going on. I'll be here to support you really does help. And she didn't even have that for quite a while, I got the impression. Yeah. I think uh, that relationship with her parents, too, um, really stood out for me, maybe from a, from a more personal perspective, but just the idea that um, sort of holding on to the idea of who my parents want me to be versus who I actually am, and then sort of tying that in with her sexuality and her mental health issues like that, for me, really struck a particular chord, especially um, at her particular age. So I guess I'm a little closer to her age than I am the characters like in Soul and in, for example. So I feel like a lot of these stories are sort of wrapped up in um, you sort of go through college and that's sort of when you break away from your parents and sort of um, sort of find out who you are and sort things like your sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this was one of the first stories that I'd seen where the character was a little bit older, closer to 30 than she was to 20. Um, and so it really rang true to me that how can I, how could she sort of be who she wanted to be? And not only that, but she even mentioned a couple of times that she had no idea how she felt, uh, what she liked or what she disliked. She had no connection to who she was at all, which, which is what led her to uh, the lesbian escort service because she knew no other way to sort of get in touch with her own desires and who she might actually be. Yeah. And when she talked about not knowing what she even liked or disliked, uh, that didn't ring true to my personal experience, but I've had some friends who've also struggled with depression. That feels like what I've seen in them, that I feel like this book helped express just how deep depression can be, that your mind just goes completely in a weird direction and just sort of entraps you within itself and how hard it can be to even recognize that's happening because it's your own mind. And I did like that in the story. She does make mention that she's seeing a therapist. You know, she's trying different things. I do like the mention that she is trying to get self-help. Well, I guess she's helping herself and getting professional help for some of it. I did like the story brought that up, that this is a part of it. And it doesn't seem to work perfectly since she mentions, oh, I just want to be hugged by the therapist. <laughs> but I like that the story does also, and that the author herself did also manage to start pulling herself out on her own, because that's hard. Yeah. Well, I think also what rang true too, uh, going sort of going back to that is that she she fails like repeatedly. She has these parts in the book where she does great. I think like when she first debuted, I think maybe she said she had a she came out of a hole, which I can certainly relate to that. So you have that that first I don't know euphoric year or two where it's like yes, I finally I've made it, and she crashed again, and she had the same problem over multiple times. And you know, I, sort of reading it again today, I'm kind of like gosh, you know, why does she keep struggling or why does this keep happening to her? But I, I feel like in uh, sort of in my real life and the, the mental issues that I've seen from other people, it is sort of repetitive like that. It's sort of something that you have to just constantly, constantly fight with and you're going to have a good year or two or six and it just comes back again and again. And just that really rang true that it wasn't one of those stories where, yes, I finally conquered it and now I'm completely well and now I'm out here doing what I want to do. I mean, it's something that she continually has to deal with maybe for the rest of her life, but that she can still live her life the way that she wants to, even with that going on. <laughs> and definitely a lot of people have, cycles i saw it explained on tumblr once i know that this sounds like a bad intro but um, the idea is that sometimes when you're living in a really tense situation you manage to bottle everything up so that as soon as you get into a less tense situation and they're referring to like year-long living situations then you find yourself breaking a little more but it's because you recognize on some level you don't have to hold yourself together as much so it's more common for people to have you know kind of more outburst problems like that after they get to a bit of a better place so I felt like that might have been what was happening here. She got to a bit of a better place, relaxed a little, and then, uh-oh, she was holding more in than she expected. Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, besides the obvious depression and uh, coming to terms with her lesbianness, there is also these themes of um, trying to be the daughter that her parents wanted to be, and, like, that's not 
even mostly true. It's like the daughter that she thought her parents wanted her to be. Right. Um, yes, and she never seems to quite figure out what her parents even want her to be. Yeah. We, we know that they want her to be successful and, you know, hold down a full-time traditional position. But beyond that, she doesn't seem to get many clues from them what they want her to do. Yeah, I guess they just keep saying salary employee over and over again. Mm-hmm. Well, and she makes a, a, a pretty good... I don't, I guess you could call it a realization, I guess, maybe towards the middle or a little close to the end that, um, those sort of, I don't want to say demands, it's not the right word, but those sort of parents telling you what to do is useful, or those sort of things are useful when you're a child to keep you safe, um, but they don't necessarily help you when you're an adult. Um, and I think that that is sort of an important realization there is that, what her parents wanted her to be or what she thinks her parents might have wanted her to be might have just stemmed from them wanting to keep her safe, um, wanting to keep her in their idea of whatever stable was. Um, and two, since it's autobiographical, we don't know if what she's saying that she heard from her parents is exactly the way that they said it. Um, she could be sort of um, interpreting that through her own lens or how she views herself. Right. Especially in the mix of her depression at the time, uh, she could be viewing this interaction as much more negative, uh, her parents being much more negative than they were. And for the portrayal that we see of her parents, it doesn't seem like they're bad people. It does seem like they're a bit, I don't want to say dim-witted since that's really mean <laughs> and definitely, and not quite what I mean, but they're de- they definitely don't notice enough that something seems to be going on of her. I got the impression from the story she might be an only child, so maybe they just didn't have another child to sort of, quote-unquote, compare her to. It it does seem like her parents did not do as much as they could to continue supporting their child, but it doesn't seem like they were trying to harm her either. It seems like they were trying to be parents and just possibly didn't quite understand how to do it. Right. And given her uh, sort of secret of nature with her depression and, like, these eating disorders, it could be just that she puts on this space that she seems normal, besides the fact that she works a part-time job at a grocery store, um, and the parents can't pick up on anything, any signs that she's giving off, because, you know, this is their only kid, likely, since in Japan. Oh, and speaking of that grocery store for a moment, there was one scene uh, when she's talking about her work at the grocery store that I really liked. Um, she's talking about how she's failed again in a way. Um, she's lost the job. And she was saying that she was kind of expecting a family from the store, you know, that they would support her and help her. But no, that's not what a job is. A job is doing something for other people. And I thought, yes, take that. All the job uh, ads that say we want someone to join our team, someone to join our family. No, that's not what you guys want. Right, <laughs> My inner right. son is very happy. <laughs> I want someone to do their job and be okay to work with. Yeah, it's sort of, that sort of jumped out at me, that part. It's sort of you want to take the book and scream or like, no, you can't look for accept, acceptance here. But sort of when she has nowhere else to go, um, when she has no other friends, when she's at home, it, it, it sort of makes a bit of sense that, oh, when I get a job, you know, maybe I'll be able to connect with everybody. But I did sort of want to take the book and be like, no, that's not how it works. They want you to think that, but that's <laughs> not how it actually works. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. And there was another moment she had when she – um, said so she realized that once she was able to help herself a bit, other people started wanting to help her. That when you seem completely helpless, ironically enough, people don't want to help you as much. And that felt like something I had seen as well. That it's rather heartless, but in some ways you need to start helping yourself before you can expect a lot of help from others. Yeah. You know, seeing someone who seems completely helpless just makes you feel kind of uncomfortable. It's like you start casting moral judgments on people and stuff like that. Hella makes a good point that I had actually uh, wanted to bring up too in uh, talking about casting moral judgments. But I also think too uh, that people think that is contagious. Sort of like if you're so helpless, if I start to get around you, is that how I'm going to be? Um, I don't know if people necessarily uh, readily vocalize that, but I do think there's a bit of like, oh God, if I get around this person, um, is it going to rub off on me? I don't, of course, I don't think that is true, but I do think that's where some of that comes from. Yeah, I'd agree, since we tend to view ourselves not just as individuals, but also as part of the larger groups we're a part of. And you don't want to be part of the lazy group. You want to be part of the hardworking group, usually. Right, right. You don't want to be perceived as someone who's not pulling their own weight. Mm-hmm. 
but there's that there's that great I don't know where it is in the book, but there's that great little little panel where it's her laying on the floor and she says the the that looking lazy and not being able to try don't look that much different. I, can, I cannot remember exactly where that is in the book, but there's a little panel of her like laying on the floor talking about that. It's hard to tell the difference between, Oh, I'm just here on the floor being lazy. And Oh, I'm here on the floor because I literally cannot try. Um, and I think that was the issue with her parents is her parents looking at her and thinking, well, we don't see anything wrong. You're just lazy when she's just at the point on the floor where she, she can't try anymore. There, it, It's not that she's not trying. It's that she just doesn't have the capacity to even do that anymore. And it, it that varies wildly from laziness. Right. I really like the panel they used on the back of the book, which is her just going up going, God damn it, I'm going to do something. I'm not just going to lie here and die. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like we do need to talk about the lesbian escorts at least a little bit since we've been talking l- less about the lesbianism. <laughs> well, it's in the title, so yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing that came up in the queer book club I went to was that a lot of folks in the group expressed that um, – they don't feel like she seemed very happy or fulfilled after um, her first enc- um, lesbian escort encounter, mm-hmm. which wasn't quite how I interpreted it. So I wanted to hear how you guys interpreted it. I felt like she uh, she's just not prepared for any of this. Um, not fulfilled is maybe a little harsh, but she is probably not fulfilled uh, in some ways, uh, especially you know sexually, because she is expecting to have this glorious sexual experience based on all of the gojenshi that she's read. All the male, male, don't think she, like, she's right specifically. But what really happens is that she is able to internalize this experience that she had, even though it was very uncomfortable for her, and uh, learn from that, at least in the first one. Yeah, because that's kind of how I saw it as well, that, like, maybe she didn't, quote-unquote, enjoy it, but she definitely got something out of the experience, even if a lot of it was just, oh, this is how lesbian sex actually goes. Okay, then. Right. Right. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that it didn't turn into at least what I took from is that it didn't turn into one of those uh, sort of uh, first encounters where it sort of cemented the fact that she was a lesbian. I almost feel like it was less about that and more about like, am am I able to be intimate at all? And I just I just thought that that was interesting that it wasn't some she didn't come out of the encounter like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely a lesbian. It was more like. It was almost like, uh, I don't know if this is the right term, but it was almost sort of like data collection. Like she wasn't really ready for, that's a terrible term. But, uh, this is the first experiment with, lesbi- with lesbian loneliness. Now I will go on to my second experiment and I will take what I've learned from the first time. It seems like it worked for. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just, I just thought that that was really interesting. I, I guess when I initially read it, I was sort of disappointed as a reader. I think you start to cheer her on and you think, oh gosh, okay, it's finally happening for her. She's, it's going to be great. She's going to find herself. And it really doesn't come out that way. And I sort of feel like, uh, it was important for it to come out the way that it did, that it wasn't some glorious first experience. It was really awkward. And I think, the main thing to take from that is she still brought herself into the experience. Like all of the issues that she had, she brought those just into a sexual experience. So I felt like the way that it played out, even though it disappointed me as a reader that was sort of rooting for her, it, it made sense. And I think it just made the series like that much more relatable. So I think that the way that that played out was it, it worked well. Yeah. The the term data collection, I think is, pretty accurate because she just does just uh take this experience and she doesn't get the sexual pleasure out of it you know and then there's this scene where uh the escort is like i don't know where your hymen is it's not oh yeah it's not uh anywhere that i have experience it's a real comedic moment too and it's like hang on let's pause this for a moment and just try to figure out where a part of your body is that really should be here yeah um and, you know, there are those funny moments throughout the series to break up the uh, the sometimes, well, often crushing nature of the manga. And, I mean, really, that's what life is. It's odd moments of comedy punctu- um, punctuating basically everything else. Yeah. <laughs> Although it did make me laugh since a few days ago. I think I saw some discussion on Twitter about, you know, virgins and, you know, hymens. And I was thinking, but you can also magically just not have one. But I think that. <laughs> Well, and, and and then after that, it sort of then she sort of gets interested in I can't remember if it's after or before when she starts to sort of get interested in like, hey, what is you know, what is the what do 
what do I look like? What does it look like? You know, maybe I should know this stuff. Like, it just, I can't remember if that was before or after. I feel like it was after. Yeah, I think uh, it was after, too, she... especially when she realized that, oh, this is nothing like the probably inaccurate boys love to she I've been reading all along. That, that was funny. I'm like, she started with that? She went into a lesbian encounter with that as her basis? I just, that was hilarious to me. But it you also... guys are going to be missing some key parts to make that work. It's just going to be different. <laughs> Yeah, it was definitely after. I, I also think um, that it, she was, I don't want to say lucky, maybe that's not the right word, but she, but she wound up with somebody that was able to read a little bit of what she was going through. I thought that the, the woman that she was with, and I can't remember she had a name, but the woman that she was with was sort of very understanding and never seemed to uh, push her too much further than she was ready to go. Um, so uh, it... As much as she brought herself into it, the person that she was with also sort of helped uh, helped spur a lot of what happens afterwards. And I felt like she was sort of uh, lucky in that way, if you can put it, if you can put it that way, that the, the woman that she was with wasn't somebody else or reacted differently. Or she could have had a far, a far more negative experience, I think. You know, that might have played into why she was thinking, oh, I want an older woman to spoil me at first. You know, she wanted someone Who's going to know what to do when she didn't? Mm-hmm. Although I don't remember if this particular escort was older or younger than her. I think yeah, the second one was younger. I was going to say, that, that's a good point. Yeah, the second one was. But that's a good point that I hadn't actually thought of is the, the actual age of the woman that she was with. Because she looked fairly young, but she may have been older than her. Uh, I think she said she picked out like someone who is 30-ish years old. So a little bit older than her, but not, yeah. not much. Although I was also thinking, well, that's just really good customer service. You know, you make the customer feel happy and, you know, important. And Helen is very cynical sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And I do feel like this experience was good for her in the long run because it did seem to give her some more confidence. And it was after this, I think, that she started doing the the autobiography. And then she kind of added on about the second experience later. And it seemed like that gave, gave her some good popularity that, since this is such a unique story, you know, people started paying attention to it and reading it, and that led to good things for her. Yeah, it kind of blew up out of nowhere, and she didn't expect it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't there an image of her just, like, hiding under her blankets, checking her notifications? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Being, like, something we've all known when we've accidentally started to play more on Twitter or something like that. <laughs> Someone talked about food again. <laughs> I was about to say, that's what it usually is, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did you What did you guys think of this sweet nectar metaphor? Because I thought it was really weird. I don't remember what that was off the top of my head. Did you, April? Um, I'm trying to remember. I sort of took it as like a mm, sort of like a spice of life thing. Um, it's sort of what gave her her drive or something that she lacked prior. But I I. I don't want to misspeak about exactly how it was defined. It just seemed like uh, what sort of gave her her drive, something that she just she just didn't have before. It might have also represented sort of like self-love. Uh, she comes to some that a kind of realization that she just doesn't love herself at all. And so now that she's able to. Uh, she's not dependent on what her parents think of her, what society thinks of her. She's found sort of that sweet nectar, as it were, inside of herself, as opposed to getting it from other people or getting it from sex or relationships, et cetera. She's able to mm, generate that within herself, I guess. And that's what you want. It's not wrong to get happiness from other people in your life. That is normal. That is fine. But you also really need to be able to make your own happiness as well to keep you going through the bumpy or lonely parts of your life to be able to accept yourself as well. And that's part of like herself, uh, her cleaning herself up, like taking a bath every day and wearing clean clothes, just being able to, uh, be proud of the presentation of yourself, even if you can, um, put all the work you could have into it like me, or, uh, <laughs> if you put more work into it, you want to be proud of how you look. Well, and maybe, um, Helen can speak to this a little bit too, but I've also heard of that, uh, just being difficult when you have depression, that sort of day to day, oh, I've got to take a bath every day, I've got to brush my hair every day, et cetera. So I sort of saw that to, to me, that's sort of, that's something that I've seen before that, okay, now that I feel a little bit better, I'm able to consistently 
do things to take care of myself. So it is sort of a self-love thing, but I also sort of saw it as like, okay, she's coming out of the depression a little bit. Um, I didn't know if uh, Helen sort of had that same interpretation or not. I definitely had that interpretation. Uh, my own depression never got quite that bad since I like being clean and I like my showers. But I know when um, I was dealing with the worst of it, um, I found myself being really happy that I had routines for things I didn't think I even needed a routine for. And that stuff like that, you know, building a routine of self-care, of, you know, remembering to eat at regular times definitely helps lift your spirits some. It won't cure the depression since depression is like literally your brain is doing something weird. <laughs> but it definitely does help. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I interpret it the same, same way as you do that. Oh, she's starting to go on the up and up and she's able to start doing these things again. Um, well, any uh, any closing thoughts on my lesbian experience with loneliness? Everybody buy this and read this, please. It's already yeah. doing so well on Amazon. Let's keep doing it. Yeah, I would have to agree. It is just it's it's just it pulls together a lot of different things that I didn't necessarily expect to see in a manga, and especially a manga from Seven Seas, given some of the other uh, series that they've released. Um, it just it. it, it it weaves in sort of parental relationships and queerness and mental health and sort of throws it in all one in all in one book. And it just kind of works and is relatable. It seems like to me to a lot of different people. So whether you whether you can relate to uh, the sexuality part of it, uh, the the mental health part of it, uh, the just trying to keep a job part of it or, you know, trying to sort of be somebody outside of your parents. I think a lot of different people can take things from this book uh, regardless of what the uh, the cover might make you think the book is solely about and i'm so happy that what should be by all rights you know a little indie title is really is selling pretty well like book scan numbers are always hush hush but someone posted the rankings of one and this did like second in all comics sold in the u.s the week it was out nice. for what oh. book scan records so, yeah, although I've seen some people speculate that the fact that it actually has lesbian in the title might make it easier for fans to just find it on Amazon. You know, oh, I definitely know this is queer then. Could be. And then they read it and do not get probably what they expected. <laughs> <laughs> well, did I went in expecting one thing and I got so much more. <laughs> it's something you book- do need a little bit of time to process after reading, I think. Yeah. Right. And did the book, did the, correct me if I'm wrong, but did the book come out last month or has it been out a while? I want to say it came out in June since TCAP is usually in May, the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. Mm-hmm. And Seven Seas had a couple of copies there, and apparently people were just fighting over them. Yeah. Well, because I wonder if some of the Spike 2 might have been uh, last month, been Pride Month, because I've seen this this particular book pop up in like uh, sort of top 10 queer reads for Pride Month or whatever. I've seen it pop up in a couple of different things, so I wondered if um, the timing of Pride Month 2 and having lesbian in the title might have. Uh, driven the sales a little bit besides it just being an excellent book. Yeah, this was released June 6th. Okay. Well, I know that my comic book store couldn't keep it in stock, but they had a lot of trouble. They were like, oh, we just ran out. We, we, this happens every time. It happened with my brother's <laughs> husband, you know. Yeah, well, this is a uh, very, very good manga that deals with loneliness, depression, lesbianism, I guess, a little bit. Um, it can go right next to Monster Musume on my seventh shoe yourself. <laughs> Wait, what does he do together? Do you, do you shelve by title or what do you shelve by? Uh, I shelve by title. Actually, I have like yeah, since MO and shelf. MY, I feel like there should be other titles in between these two. Uh, I mean, I just wanted to make a joke like, right next to Monster Resume, but. <laughs> I'm going to judge you and what you own for me. Oh, I'm, I'm already judging you, believe me. <laughs> like, of all things. I definitely don't have Monster Musume. I do have a signed Monster Musume thing from my friend, though. It's a, that's an interesting one. <laughs> Actually, shelved by size. So, this one will go with... You're weirdo. Well, that's not weird. Yes, it is. Well, why? How do you remember where you put everything, then? Because it's, there's my vertical shelf, basically, which are all the small smaller books, and then Viz and Kogongshas are basically the same size, so they're all on one shelf, and then all the rest of them are below, and then I remember those because they're sort of premium-ish volumes. Still judging you. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, that's how I do it, too. The oversized are on a totally different shelf. So well, that's to... different. You know, oversized versus regular size. But anyway. <laughs> they can't be together like that. It's fair. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, let's, let's close this thing out. Where can we find you all on the Internet, Ellen? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Wandering Dreamer. You can also find me doing podcasting, manga reviews, light novel reviews, and occasionally an anime review over on the OESG, which is the Organization of Antisocial Geniuses. And our podcast is called It's Not My Fault. The OESG podcast is not popular. And it really isn't my fault. I did not even come up with this name. April. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mangio Red. Um, I'm on Twitter sort of sporadically, but I am there. I'm sort of uh, in, tangibly involved with the OSG. I edit, et cetera, et cetera. She edits uh, my stuff and fixes all of my many grammar problems. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I like Hella the best. Uh, but, yeah, that's where you can find me is uh, on Twitter mostly. I do have a blog, but it hasn't been updated in a while. But there is um, a lot of good manga coming out, so that might have to change soon. And I'm on Twitter, at Impassionate K. Um, our podcast has a Twitter. I created it today. It is, uh, what is it? I forget. I think you just put manga in your ears. I was amazed you fit the whole thing okay. into the handle. It's manga in your ears. Manga you can follow ears. us there. <laughs> yes, we are at Manga in Your Ears at on Twitter. Uh, I have another podcast, Sports Anime. We mostly usually cover <laughs> Sports Anime. <laughs> usually. Taiku Podcast, T-A-I-I-K-U. Uh, and like I said, thank you all for creating this podcast with me. Here's to uh, however many more successful episodes. Let's get as many people reading manga as we can. Yes, let's. Let's do that. Indoctrinate <laughs> the children. <laughs> <laughs>